So if you are um, looking in your life to connect with other people, or maybe you're looking to run from other people, that's a possibility. In fact, a lot of people are. But let me ask you this question. If you are in a place of brokenness, can you identify a person in your life that you could go to, that you could trust not only to share what is going on in your life, but also to trust them to keep it confidential, to trust them to be able to actually handle what you're going through. Some people can't. So think about that. Who in your life is somebody that you could go to? Church is an interesting thing. I've been involved in church my whole life. My dad was a pastor, and um, I, so I grew up in the church. I'm, I'm what we call a lifer, you know. I got a life sentence. And, uh, and growing up, I, I watched the church, and, and many of you, how many of you have been in church more than five years? Yeah, most of you. The ones that have been here longer than 10 years are asleep now. They know the drill. That's why we call it a sermon. It's nap time. If, if I look at church over the years, I will see that there is what I would call the conspiracy of pretense, that place where we continually are pretending to be closer to God and closer to others. And it's a problem. We pretend we're better than we are. When somebody says hi to us and says, how are you doing in church? You answer that differently than you would at your job, right? You pretend to be really spiritual. You'll say something like, I'm blessed. You would never say that at the job. Well, if you do, you'd lose your job. But the reality is that every one of us uh, has a tendency to pretend to a certain extent. But this conspiracy, it's an unstated conspiracy to pretend that we're closer to God and closer to others than we really are. Do we have any Trekkies here? Any Trekkies? And if you don't know what that is, you aren't a Trekkie. We got two or three over there sitting with no one. So that's, <laughs> Trekkies are, Trekkies are typically uh, uh, people that love, you know, Star Trek and they know this uh, one important thing, and that's the Star Trek uh, fleet, uh, Starfleet Prime Directive. Could, I won't ask you to say it, but do you know what it is? Yes, they're nodding. Like, we'll see if you know. And the Prime Directive is this, prohibiting Starfleet personnel, I'm reading it because I'm not a Trekkie, uh, personnel from interfering with the normal and healthy development of alien life and culture. I don't see anyone taking notes here. <laughs> the idea is that, in fact, you are uh, a person that uh, understands that when you go to another planet, which is possible, I guess, uh, you would not interfere in the development evolution of that society, right? You just leave it alone. That's the prime directive. Do you know what the prime directive of every single Christian is? Every single follower of Jesus Christ has a prime directive. And of course, it's under this banner of we exist to glorify God. But let me tell you the prime directive. Jesus was asked, what is the greatest command? What's the greatest commandment? And he responded by, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might, right? 
And then he said, and the second is like unto it, love your neighbor as yourself. So love God with all of your being, love your neighbor like you love yourself. That's the prime directive. Love is the prime directive. And so what I want to share with you uh, uh, this morning is an important passage. And if you have your Bible, turn to 1 John chapter 1. I want to look at, at 1 John chapter 1. And while you're turning there, maybe you have your app or whatever, and get to 1 John chapter 1. Uh, the prime directive for Christians, Adam and Eve failed to follow God and they sinned. What were the first three things that they did after they sinned? They sinned and the first thing they did was they covered themselves. They saw their nakedness and they covered, they'd been naked their whole existence, but now something was associated negative with their nakedness, so they covered themselves. And then they hid themselves in the garden when they heard God walking in the garden, so they hid themselves. And then the third thing they did that you would never do is they blamed each other for the fall, right? And so they, they uh, covered themselves, they hid themselves, and they blamed others. These are all techniques that happen within a fallen, sinful heart to keep us from experiencing something that hurts. And so our whole life is structured around self-protection. And on a psychological basis, as well as a spiritual basis, what we're struggling with is this, this concept that we're constantly covering ourselves. We're, we don't want to be exposed. We don't want anyone to see our flaws. We hide from God. So the prime directive is love God with all your heart, love your neighbor as yourself, and sinful people are doing exactly the opposite because it's counterintuitive to a heart that's been damaged by sin to approach God in love, and to approach others in love. And so uh, here's, here's a proposition. I ask you this question, uh, or, or make this statement. If Here's the question. Would you say that this is true in your life? Listen to this. In order to connect to others, according to 1 John, in order to connect to others, we must love God. And in order to connect with God, we must love others. It's a real catch. And some of you would say, well, you know, I, I love God, but I just don't like his children. Turn to the person next to you and say, if you're a child of God, I simply don't like you. No, don't do that. We're in church. So that's our prime directive is love God with all of our heart and love our neighbors ourselves. And the problem is that sinful people can't do that. And so John writes something that's very important. I want you to see this, this little chart of, of, of a box. Others are put outside the box, and you are inside the box. Let me tell you a little story about a guy named John. John was a guy that had it all together. Everybody that saw him, he went to church regularly. He, had a, he was married. He had uh, three or four children. They were uh, happy, apparently, and John had a great job. He was successful. He read his Bible on a regular basis. John prayed. He went to a Bible study. And everybody saw John as someone to be admired. John was a person who apparently had it all together. But what people didn't realize was that was a facade. And John lived in a box. 
He lived in a box that was self-imposed isolation. It was affecting his marriage. It was affecting his friendships. It's affecting his role as a father. It's It's affecting his fellowship with other people. So he lives in this box. And what John is talking about is that we need to break through that box, as I'm going to show you. And the second chart, uh, if you look at the screens, the second chart is how to get in this space that I call the connection space. Most people think that all they need to do is connect to God and everything will be fine. The problem is, if you're going to connect with others... And if you're going to connect to God, you have to ascend into a relationship with God. And then as you connect with God and others at the point of God, then you can drop into this connection space. This connection space is the prime directive of every Christian. My question to you again is this. If you're in a troubled place, if you're struggling, who could you go to? that you trust to handle your struggle? Who do you know well enough that when you hit a a wall in your life that you could go to them and trust them? And, and, And maybe even more importantly, what person could come to you? Are you that person that people would come to to draw good advice, to be safe? So let me talk to you about this decline. There's, um, I'm not really a scuba diver. I I guess I could say I am a scuba diver because I took lessons. Well, okay, I only took two lessons. But, uh, and and I really can't say I'm a scuba diver because both of those lessons were in a pool, uh, a swimming pool, chlorinated swimming pool. And so there I was in this chlorinated swimming pool with a, the gear on. And I never got this far, but they have this thing, and I had to study it because I don't really know. And that is, it's called a, by any any scuba divers here? I don't don't see anybody. Oh, we got same guy that's a Trekkie as a scuba diver, (laughs) which is kind of ironic if you think about it, you know, going to space, going into, anyway. Okay, so here's here's the issue. Uh, When you put weights on and you go scuba diving, you want to go down so you can get down into the water, right? And so you have to compensate for that. So they have this vest type. And, and if I make any mistakes, there's only two people who know what I'm talking about. So I can make mistakes. Just don't talk to them. And this will make sense. And then what you do is you can pump air or gas. I'm not sure which. We'll go with that. And then it pumps into this vest, which is called a uh, buoyancy compensator. And what that does is it changes your negative buoyancy to either neutral or positive buoyancy following me. Here we are. You are sinking. You are born in this world sinking due to the fact that we are not connected to God and we need a connection to God. And it's affecting our relationships. We're going deeper and we're declining into self-delusion or self-deception. And and I'm going to show you what John says about that as we open up 1 John and, and what we need is a buoyancy compensator. And so what a lot of people do is they look at other people and they see other people as weights in their life. That these people are going to weigh me down. And if you don't believe that's true, just have children and you'll find out that's true. People weigh you down. Kids do anyway. All right, I have seven kids. I know about being weighed down. 
I need a buoyancy compensator for kids. Thank God they've grown and I never see them again. That's just simply not true. I see them all the time. But you want to get that positive buoyancy. You want to be able to rise to the top in this relationship with Christ. So let me show you the lies that we tell ourselves, that we go through and we tell ourselves. The lie number one, here's your fill-in. Lie number one, you see it on the screen here. Uh, living in darkness won't impact my connection and talking about our connection to God. Let me show you the scripture. Living in darkness won't impact my connection. It says in 1 John chapter 1, verse 6, look at it here. If we say that we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. So a lot of people think, you know, I can live the way I want to live. And there is a great emphasis in the church today, and I think it's really refreshing. There's a strong emphasis on grace. And this is a marvelous thing because without grace, we would have nothing because we don't deserve anything. But God graciously has given us eternal life through Jesus Christ, right? So grace is a wonderful thing. But some people have thought, well, grace means I can do whatever I want and still have a close relationship to God. Well, you can have salvation, but if you want to be intimate with God, you're going to have to change your behavior. Your behavior cannot be, he says, if we say that we have fellowship with him, that is God, while we walk in darkness, we are self-deceptive. We are lying, and we're not practicing the truth. The second lie is this, and declining into self-deception. The second one is, I am free of sin. Uh, verse 8 says, if we say we have no sin... We deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. I had an uncle that lived to his hundred, the week of his 100th birthday. Over the years, my mother, his sister, had shared with him many, many times how he needed Jesus Christ. And you know what his response was? He goes, why would I need Jesus? I'm not even a sinner. Now, this is his little sister and she knows he's a sinner. Anybody have a little sister? Come on, they know. And then later on, you marry somebody else's little sister, and then she really knows and will let you know. But he believed he was sin-free, was self-deceived. And he did this based on the fact that he looked at other people. And I got to tell you, he's a pretty good guy. My uncle was a good guy. He was a good husband, he was a good provider, but he was a sinner. And he was self-deceived, and he died without ever acknowledging that he needed Jesus Christ as a Savior because he lied to himself and said he doesn't sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Here's number three. Number three, I have not committed acts of sin. So not only am I a sinner, Am I not a sinner? But I've never really even sinned. How many of you are married? Raise your hand if you either have been or are presently married. So just if this is your position, I, I've never committed sin. Here's what it says. If we say we have not sinned, let me just, if that's your position, would you just please ask your spouse <laughs> if that's true? And say, be honest with me. Have I ever sinned? And then put on a helmet for the answer. Because the truth is, 
we make him a liar. We make God a liar by saying we're not, we've never sinned and his word is not in us. We make God a liar. You see, there's a decline in, in the deception. And we say that we can have fellowship with God when we're walking in darkness. We say, I, I'm not even a sinner and I've never even sinned. And there's a decline that takes place. And uh, we need to acknowledge this. You know, have you ever, uh, any, any, I see some people wearing glasses here. Some of you may have contacts. Uh, I, I wear glasses. I've been wearing them since I was 45, which is about a year now. And uh, yeah, that's closer. You'll see how funny that is. Um, so in here, I have my old glasses. And my wife kept telling me, Tim, these glasses are worthless. They look horrible on you. Now, I'm going to show you what they look like. They don't look any different. These are my new glasses, by the way. These are my old glasses. I can't even tell the difference. She picked out these, and she picked out these. She said, it's not. Is it pretty bad? Doesn't help a thing, does it? Well, let me tell you. She said, these are all, I, I wear hair product. May not look like it, but I do. And it's all over my glasses, my frames. And they've been like, I buy a pair of glasses and I wait for years to change them, you know? And these are just, I said, she said, you don't look good in them. And I said, well, yeah. And another problem is I can't see anything with them. <laughs> and I put these on and I looked in the mirror and I said, oh, what's happened? You've aged so much in a day. I was deceiving myself, thinking that I don't need these new glasses. I can see everything. You look so good today. Yes, you're welcome. And I can actually read. I can see. But we get deceived into believing that we are okay. And what happens is over time, those subtle changes happen to those lenses and happens to our vision, and we can't see as clearly. Self-deception is a huge problem with people. We don't bring up the fact that you're a sinner to make you feel guilty. We bring up the fact that you're a sinner so you'll know you need a solution. So let me share with you this prime directive for, for Christians. 1 John chapter 1, I skipped through a few verses to talk about this self-deception. I want to get how we can live outside of that box and find that connection space, not only with God, but with others. I want us to look at this, uh, living the prime directive. First thing I want you to know is we have to enter fellowship with God. You will never have right relationships with your friends, with your spouse, with your children, with your parents, with your siblings, with your co-workers, uh, with people in your church, in your, in your small groups, your life groups. You're never going to have the relationships that you need if you don't start by entering into fellowship with God. So let me begin by reading 1 John chapter 1, verse 1. And this is what it says. If you have your Bible there, look at what it says. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard which we have seen with our eyes, which we've looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. 
The life was made manifest, verse 2, and we have not, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life. That's important. I'll come back to that. Which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. So verse 3 says this. I put it on screen for it. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So notice that the reason that John is writing 1 John, the book of 1 John, the reason he's writing this is so that you will be able to have fellowship with John and the other apostles, and you will have fellowship with God the Father and God the Son. So that's the, we, the reason he wrote this book. It's this, look at this chart again, go to the next slide. It, it shows this chart, the, the reason that uh, John wrote the book of 1 John is to get us to understand we need to be in that connection space. You were created to not only connect to God, but according to Scripture, after God created man, it's the first time he said, this is not good. Everything was, this is good, this is good, this is good. And then he creates man, and many of you women will relate to this. He said, this is not good. Oh, that's not exactly what he said. He said, it's not good that man, what, be alone. So he created the woman. You see, you were made, not, that's not just talking about the need for marriage. That's talking about the fact that we are social. We need connection with other human beings. And if you're living in a box, like my false story about John, he has everything except he has isolated himself from his family, his friends, his church, and his co-workers. If that's where you are, you are not experiencing the joy. In fact, he says in this passage, I've written these things that your joy might be full, and your joy will only be full when you find this connection space. So my question is, are you there? And if you're not there, how are you resolving that problem? Maybe you're lying to yourself and saying, I have fellowship with God, but I'm living in sin. In fact, I've never really even said, I don't sin, and I never really have sinned. Look at the, the, the second prime part of the prime directive. Number two, overcome the barrier to God. Overcome the barrier to God. In verse 5 it says, this is the message which we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Now you may be aware, uh, or we're not, but originally John wrote this in what is called Greek language. Not the modern Greek, but a Koine Greek, common Greek language of the first century. And it was a language that was very clear, and he uses a word here for light that I want you to get, and it's the word phos. We get our word phosphorus from it. The word phos has to do with source of light. Now, uh, John could have used the word lampros. The word lampros is a lamp. It's a temporary light, and in those days, when the oil would run out, you have no more light. But a phos is a source of light, and it emanates from itself. It's like the sun. It's a source of light. Or it could be another Greek word, lunos, which is a reflection of light. It's our word for 
a lunar or moon. And so the sun will shine as a source of light, and we see that light reflected in the moon. So it's a reflection of light. But God is not a reflection of light. God is not a temporary light. God is the very source of light. And what he's talking about is there is this spiritual reality about who Jesus Christ is, who God is, that he's the very source of moral perfection. God is moral perfection. So how are you going to have a relationship with God if you're living in sin? There's going to be that barrier between you and, and God. What is light? What is darkness? You know, when I was a kid, I was afraid of the dark. I don't know anybody else. You don't have to raise your hand. You know, there's probably about... A good 50% of you were afraid of the dark. I'm not the only one. But I was so afraid of the dark. And, and I, I, I actually was afraid of nothing. My dad shared with me one day and he said, what are you afraid of? I said, I'm afraid of the dark. He said, are you afraid of something being in the dark? I go, no, not really. I'm just afraid of the dark. Like, I, I like it to be light. And he said, well, do you know what light is? And I said, I have no clue, Dad, what? You know, I'm five years old. Come on, help me out. He said, darkness is different in, than light in that light is the presence of energy and darkness is the absence of that energy. In fact, darkness is nothing. You're afraid of nothing. In a five-year-old little mind, that didn't help at all. But for us today, it may be helpful to understand that God is the presence of spiritual energy and the absence of that we would call darkness. In order for us to make this room dark, all we have to do is shut the doors and turn out the lights. Where does the light go? Did darkness overcome it? No, darkness can't overcome light. Only light can overcome darkness because darkness is not real. I'm still a little bit afraid of it. That's between me and my therapist. And in him there is no darkness at all. He's absolute spiritual perfection. Verse 7, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. And literally, and without getting into too much detail, the grammatical structure of this, as John originally wrote it, it literally means that when you walk in the light, that God is going to continually cleanse your life. He's perfecting your life. If you're into theology, we would call that sanctification. It is your life being purified. But you have to walk, as you walk in the light, God is constantly purifying your life with the blood of Jesus Christ. But in verse 9, and, and here I want you to catch this, because this is the solution to the sin problem in the life of the believer. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So this is a different kind of action that John presents. So you remember he said this, if we say that we have fellowship with God, if we say we have fellowship with God 
walk in darkness, we're lying, right? If we say. If we say we have no sin, we're lying. And then he says, if we say we've never sinned, his truth is not in us. He keeps saying, if we say, if we say, if we say. And in verse 9 it says, notice on the screen, if we confess. That's very strategic in the writing of 1 John. John is saying, look, you need to counter lies with truth. The word confess is a Greek word, homo legeo. Homo means the same, and legeo means to speak. It means to literally speak the same thing. So you are saying the same thing that God says. If we confess our sins, God, I am admitting that what your word says about my behavior, my conclusion is that I'm in sin. I confess that to you. He's faithful and just. Forgive us our sins and to cleanse us. This time it's not a continual cleansing, but it's a point-in-time cleansing. It's a point-in-time cleansing. It's called the aorist tense. It means it's a point in time that God, when you confess that sin, he cleanses that sin from your life. And you get back into the light. And then that process, once we're in the light, we are being continually cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ as a believer. In other words, truth sets us free, doesn't it? We need to stop lying about who we are. Now he wrote this so that we might have fellowship with God the Father, God his Son, and together. And he said, I also wrote it that your joy may be full. So how are you doing with that? How are your relationships with other people? You see, it's not just you have a disagreement. It's sin stands in the way of our relationships. Number three, living the prime directive, overcome the barrier to others. So not only do you need to overcome the barrier to God, we need to overcome the barrier to others. And if you look at chapter two, he says this, whoever says, in verse nine, whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. The proof that your fellowship is not real is when you have a hatred for your brother. Do you hate any brother in Jesus Christ? Verse 10 says, whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause of stumbling. About 40 years ago, I was pastoring a church, and this little church that I pastored of about 100 people, um, we wanted to see that church grow, and I don't mean numerically grow, although it did, but we wanted to see people grow. We wanted to see people mature. And I, and I had read this book about the importance of small groups. And you know, I grew up in a, in a church environment. It was kind of like this. You come to church, you listen to one guy share his gifts, and then you go home. We just did church, right? And hopefully the singing was good, and hopefully you could stay awake during the sermon. And, uh, you know, if you did, and uh, okay, great. We just did church. But this book said, in order to do church, we can't do that. We've got to take it deeper. And it recommended that we get into small groups. 
at this church, it's called, they're called life groups. Some of you are thinking you're doing church by coming here this morning, and it's important that you're here. You need that. There is something, and I'll tell you, there is something supernatural that happens when we gather together and worship in the name of Jesus Christ. I don't know if you know that, but it's supernatural, and it's powerful. But we need deeper relationships It's not good for man to be alone. And so we need to understand whoever loves his brother abides in the light. How much of the connection do you have to brothers and sisters in Christ? Let me tell you three things about life groups that you need to understand. Number one, love demands proximity. I have seven kids, seven children, the youngest one is 18. The oldest one is older than most of you. So what? Whatever. And I have six grandchildren and many more on the way, I'm sure. The grandchildren that are close by are easier to talk to. The children that live here in town are easier to stay in contact with. I have to be intentional to stay in contact with two of my grandson's who live up in Northern California. I have to to be intentional about staying in in touch with my my oldest daughter who lives in Orange County. The other ones won't stop coming to our house. (laughs) So it just happens, which I jokingly say that, but I love every Monday night when we have family night. Are you intentionally getting in close proximity to brothers and sisters in Christ? Have you joined a life group? Second thing, your connection to others impacts your connection to God. You can't say, I hate my brother and say I'm walking in the light. You see, uh, John is making it clear that your relationship to other people impacts your relationship to God. And then number three, Love removes offenses. Look what it says. When you walk in the light, that is, you're loving your brother, you're abiding in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. The word stumbling means an offense. You're not offensive. I happen to be kind of a verbal processor. You've maybe known a few of those. You probably don't want to be around them much, but I'm a verbal processor. And verbal processors have a tendency to offend people. May have done it this morning. It was not my objective, but it may have happened. But when you love people, there's something powerful that happens. And even though you make mistakes, that love is like a salve on a wound. And people know Ah, he messes up, but he really loves me. Trust me, loving people leads to incredible growth. And let me just close with this, because I'm three minutes over. First John chapter 1 says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen. This is verse 1 of First John 1. And we looked upon and touched him with our hands concerning the word of life. What is this word of life? So... If, you know, and, and I would encourage you to read this later. Read the first chapter of First John 
and look at in the first three verses, and it talks about handling the person of the word of life. And so many commentators will say, isn't it amazing that the disciples, the apostles, the men like John who became not only a follower of Christ, but an apostle who would write scripture under the inspiration of God, that that person actually walked with Jesus during his ministry. And so, you know, look at it. He, he handled, he touched, he saw Jesus in his earthly ministry. But that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the eternal life, the word of life. He's talking about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Notice what it says in verse 2. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaim it to you. What is it? It's eternal life. Eternal life was obtained through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. So Jesus came. We saw his ministry. He was raised from the dead. We actually handled him. You remember in the upper room that first night and then eight days later on the next Sunday, they saw him again. They handled him. They touched his side. They touched his hand. They knew that Jesus had been raised from the dead. And he said, I'm writing, I'm proclaiming this so that you'll know that we're not just another religion. Our religious leader is Jesus who died, who was buried, who rose from the dead. And you can have eternal life through Jesus Christ simply by believing in him. That's the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do you know him? Have you submitted to him? We're going to break bread in just a moment. And it's a reminder of the death of Christ. But it's not only a reminder of the death of Christ. It's also a reminder that he's coming back. He said, do this in remembrance of me until I come. So in that process of the gospel is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He not only died for you, he rose from the dead to give you eternal life. That's the basis of our fellowship. We're not a religion. We're followers of Jesus, the risen Savior. Let's bow together in prayer. Heavenly Father, we pray that as we come before you at this moment that we would see that our fellowship with each other is, is vital to our lives. That we would see that not only is that fellowship vital, but Lord, that we need to connect to you. And Lord, we know that there are barriers in the way. And as we assimilate all of this, so much information today, I pray that we would take this home and really talk about this and work through it and begin to, to realize who we are in Jesus Christ and that we desperately need connection with each other. We pray that you'd be glorified today as we continue in this service. In Jesus' name, amen.